Hello and welcome to the Emergency Medicine Podcast. My name's Simon Carley. I'm one of the associate editors on the journal and I've got a particular interest in social media. What I'm going to do this month, February 2015, is take you through the interesting papers that are published this month. Now, this isn't everything that's published in the EMJ. There's lots and lots of interesting stuff in there. So don't just take it from me that it's good. Go and read it yourself. Get online. It's there. Um, quite a few of the papers we're talking about this month are free and open access online. So if you get there quick, you'll be able to read them in full. But if you don't have that time, I can take you through some of the highlights. So first up is the editor's choice, and that's a paper looking at the initial validation of the international crowding score in emergency departments. Now, unless you've been living under a rock for the last six months, you'll know that emergency medicine, particularly in the UK, has had a bit of a crisis. We've been extremely busy and we've been suffering with incredible levels of overcrowding on our emergency departments. My personal experience is this is some of the worst times that we've had in emergency medicine for probably 10, 20 years. Real, real challenges. But communicating that to other people, and particularly communicating that to people who don't work in emergency medicine, beyond the headlines and the scandals and the, and the, the big crisis headlines that we see in the newspapers, can be difficult. That's not what we do as physicians. We want objective measures. We're, we're, we're scientists, or we pretend that we're scientists most of the time. Now, Adrian Boyle and colleagues in Adambrooks have done a really nice study, really, looking at whether we can quantify overcrowding in a way that we can then share to colleagues, we can share to managers, and we can track and measure and compare. And I think that's going to be really interesting and really important for us as we move on. So what the team has done is they've looked at a potential 84 variables, and they've, they've focused down on eight eventually, some looking at the input, so you know, things like can patients get off the ambulance trolleys into the emergency department, and some things about looking at throughput, so are we seeing patients in a timely manner? And other things about output, so are people waiting to go to the wards, and is there bed blocking in the organisation? So an eight-point scale which we can measure, we can use to define how crowded we are. In previous studies, crowding has been defined by the emergency physician thinks it's crowded. Well, having worked in lots of different departments, the definition of crowded, believe me, varies. This is objective, this is good, so go and read that, I think you're going to find it useful. And it's a sort of information which we can share and we can use to track changes, do comparisons, and also look to see how our performances are changing. So I like this, it's good, go and read it. Second paper is almost, it's kind of related really. Again, I'm sure you've had the experience of people coming into your department and walking into a very crowded emergency department and looking at a big sea of people in the emergency department waiting room. They look at ambulances waiting to offload patients. They look at the recess room, which has got six patients in, where it actually should only have four. That every cubicle has a patient in, and even people are suggesting that they double up in cubicles. I'm sure you've experienced this in the past. And somebody from an organisation outside of emergency medicine will come in and go, who are all these people? What is going on in your emergency department? Why don't you just send all of that lot home because they don't need to be here? Why don't you just admit this lot? And, you know, what are these people here for? And, you know, you take a deep breath and sigh and, and think. And you do. But again, it seems to happen on a, on a fairly frequent basis. But our colleagues in Ireland, so Peter Gilligan and colleagues, have done a nice study with a great title, Who Are All These People Study? So the what study. The what people, get it? Yeah, it's quite clever. And what they've done is they've surveyed an emergency department three times a month and done snapshots of who's actually there. Now, there's a whole variety of different people. So there'll be people a proportion waiting for triage, there'll be people being investigated, there'll be people waiting for review. But what they found, and I think this is really interesting and, and reflective of many emergency departments, is that two thirds of the patients at any one time were just waiting for admission. So they'd already been through their emergency department process, but what was happening is they were just simply waiting to get into the department, to get into the hospital, rather. And clearly, 
If their major emergency medicine process has already finished, then the value of them waiting in the ED is, is questionable and also potentially compromises the care of the other patients who require emergency medicine care. Now, this is the situation in Ireland. It may well be different in your locality. It's probably slightly different in the UK, perhaps not quite as bad. But it's really interesting again. And this is the sort of information which we can use to allow other people to understand how the emergency medicine process works or doesn't work and how other people can help us. So again, I commend you this paper. It's quite interesting. I'd go and have a look and see if you could do something similar in your department. What would you find? Would it be the same? Yeah, there'd be some, there'd be some crossovers certainly here. And quantify, because people who run the system, they like numbers. Give them numbers. This is a way of giving them numbers. Staying in the UK, we're now going to think about stroke. So there's a few papers on stroke in the journal this month. Strokes always very topical and, you know, thrombolysis for stroke is incredibly topical. I'm sure you've read many of the papers on this and had a look at some of the papers in the BMJ and the debates about whether we should be thrombolyzing strokes. But putting that to one side, even if you're not into thrombolysis, you could clearly understand that the recognition of stroke patients by pre-hospital personnel and in alerting EDs to get the processes running quickly for them is probably not a bad idea. But the frequency of pre-hospital recognition and pre-alerting varies. And we use different tools around the world. So in the UK, in a study by Shepherd, they've looked at the first test to diagnose stroke. And they, there's not bad, actually. They performed the first test overall in about 93% of patients who later got diagnosed with stroke. But it was only positive in about 75% of them. So it's not a particularly sensitive test, although that's how it's been promoted in the UK. So they've looked at some audit data as well, looking at whether or not onset of time was recorded, so only in about two-thirds of patients. And that's obviously important if you're into thrombolysis. And pre-alerting, less than 50% of cases. So there's clearly room in the UK for better liaison between the emergency department and the pre-hospital services if we're going to deliver time-critical interventions. And the more likely you are to get information on fast-positive patients and time of onset, they found, unsurprisingly, that you're more likely to get a CT within an hour and therefore more likely to be eligible for intervention. So that's interesting again. So have a look at that. If you're a stroke centre in particular, how do you liaise with your pre-hospital services? Do you have a good relationship? Is the information flowing well? And is there anything else that they can do to improve your times? And on a similar theme, in the journal this month, we've got a paper from Kendall, also a UK paper in the southwest of England, looking at their interventions to try and improve the time is brain time for patients with potential stroke. So they've done a whole bunch of interventions about pre-alerting, taking patients directly to CT rather than coming to the ED if the stroke was likely. And they've increased their um, ability to deliver thrombolysis and decreased their time by about 19 minutes, which is pretty significant. So again, it does look as if there is room for improvement in this area, certainly in the UK. Not sure if it's the same internationally, but worth a, worth a look again. If you're a stroke centre, definitely worth having a look at these two papers. We're then going to have a, a bit of a change, really. So looking at myocarditis, I've seen myocarditis in children a few times over the years, and some of it is pretty mild. Some of it is horrendous. Vomiting, fever, shortness of breath, very, very common causes of patients attending the ED. But what do you think about myocarditis? It's quite tricky, actually. And Chong and colleagues in the journal this month, they've used a, a, a case control design to look at five factors which might predict myocarditis, looking at things like respiratory distress, poor perfusion, hypertension, abnormalities on the chest x-ray and any ECG abnormality. Now, they're OK. I'm sure they are associated, but unfortunately, they are quite present, apart from maybe the ECG abnormality in a lot of patients. So have a read of this and think about how it might be useful to you. But I suppose the big learning from here is that you should just keep pediatric, pediatric myocarditis in the back of your head when you are seeing that child who looks sick. But there's something different. 
keep it as a, as a list of your variables and, and potentially get ECGs on more patients than you would normally do. And then the last paper I was going to talk about this month is an interesting one, actually, because I don't think this is a UK problem. It's a paper looking at CT utilisation in the US. And this is a real concern for me because the, the premise behind this paper is that patients can have repeated CTs because they may have been to one institution which doesn't share information with another. And so a patient may turn up in one hospital, get a CT, and then go to another hospital, say, within 30 days, and get another CT. Now, that's a significant radiation load in many cases, and that's not a good idea. Now, in the UK, we have a nationwide service for sharing radiological images, and it's fantastic. It's one of the greatest things that has ever come out of NHSIT. In fact, possibly the only great thing that's come out of NHSIT, maybe. But no, maybe, maybe. But PAC's system in the UK is fantastic. What these guys have done over in the US and Rhode Island is looked at patients who present with CT. And if they've had a CT in another hospital, they go and find it. And that pretty much seems really obvious to me. But maybe that's a symptom of a different healthcare economy that works in different ways than the UK and potentially has harm to patients because we don't want to irradiate patients unless they have to. So you think, fantastic, putting that system in, a health information exchange would reduce CT scanning. But no, what they actually found, Kamat and colleagues, was that it only, what, 0.4%, so was that one in 200 cases roughly, would have actually have stopped them from doing a scan. So although it's a good idea to exchange health information and CT scan reports, it probably wouldn't have made a difference. Now, you know, that needs exploring. So would it made a difference? It's a hypothetical question. We don't know. And also we don't know how this is going to actually work in practice. But it, it is interesting. It's interesting to look at different systems around the world. And I, I guess I was a little bit surprised that you don't have the exchange systems in other countries like we do in the UK. As I say, the PAC system in the UK is excellent for this. So if you are interested in reducing the radiological dose to our patients, and let's face it, we probably all should be, it's worth having a look at this or whether about this strategy or something else may help us reduce the radiological load to our patients. So have a look. Have a think. That brings us to the end of the primary survey this month. I hope you enjoy those papers. There's a couple of really cracking ones there that you should definitely read, particularly if you're interested in crowding or stroke medicine. You'll hear a lot more from the EMJ. Visit the website, listen to the podcast, read the blogs, get in touch on Twitter, write us a letter, just stay in touch. <laughs>